0: We're back. Welcome back to the Flat Out RC Podcast, the podcast where we talk all things aeromodelling. We're talking radio-controlled planes, drones, and helis. And I'm very excited today, and I'll get to why very shortly. But we've got a big episode for you. Uh, this week's special guest is a man by the name of John Lamont. Some of you may have met John or know of John. Uh, you could say he's the last real magazine slash newsletter publisher independent publisher for aeromodelling in Australia, uh, producing a uh, little PDF newsletter every couple of months. Um, so really looking forward, uh, oh, I've already had a chat, I'm not looking forward to having a chat, looking forward to sharing the discussion that I had with uh, with John. But uh, let's say that John has been on the scene for a long time and some of his tales are quite interesting. So stay tuned for John. But before we get into our special guest, let's take a look at what's been happening around the traps. Now, I said I was excited, and the reason why I'm excited is that we are back flying down here in Melbourne, Victoria, Australia. We have been let out. We've been let out to go to the fields. The restrictions have come to an end. We've done an excellent job. We've had something like at the time of recording this, I think we've had something like eight days of zero cases. So we're doing really, really well, and they've let us loose. Um, And I'm recording this on a Sunday, and the government has announced that the 25 kilometre radius rule for Melbournians, which restricted our access to places 25 kilometres from our house, uh, is taken down, which means I can get back to the flying field. But I'm really happy because I actually went flying today. I went to the last bastion of places where you can really fly locally or at a park, which is Caulfield Racecourse here in Melbourne, if, if uh, you into horse racing, you will know of Caulfield Racecourse. But... There's been a model flying club there for a very long period of time. And it's actually written into their bylaws that you're allowed to fly model planes on the inside of the track. The Inside of the track is actually a public park. Now it's within my 25K radius and I headed on down there, beautiful day today. Sun shining, light breeze. Uh, I kept it safe, I just took a Foamy with me. uh, My RC Factory Edge XL. And it was just so good, did about seven flights or something. Had a friend of mine there and uh, met a few other people and just had a chat and had a fly, and that's what it's all about. And uh, really, really amazed at how good it was to get out there and have a fly and can't wait to get back into it whilst the weather is warming up here in uh, in Victoria. I've Got a lot of more airplanes to fly. So for those of you that are in lockdown, we know what it's like. For those of you that have been free for a while, we're back, baby. And uh, let's let's make the most of it. We've still got to wear masks. Uh, when we're at the field, keep some social distancing rules in place, but uh, I think it's a small price to pay, really. So, well done, Melbourne, Victoria, we're back flying. I was getting a bit tired of saying, uh, another weekend in lockdown. but There's actually some other news, uh, product news, DJI, the drone manufacturer's announced another new drone, uh, the DJI Mini 2. Now, one of the key features of this Mini 2, they, they did have a, a, a Mavic, Oh, no, not the Mavic. Oh, the Mavic Mini, but this is now called the Mini Two, and one of the big features is that it falls underneath the two hundred fifty gram weight limit for drones, which means it's sort of no, you're unrestricted really. Uh, now, what is the advantage of this? Like they say, it's two hundred forty nine grams. That's how much it weighs. So they're just scraping in. Now, as you can imagine, it's a pretty small drone we're not talking racing drone here. We're talking about that sort of photography style of drone with all the lovely GPS aids and all that kind of stuff and hover modes and all that. So uh, what do I think of it? I watched a video on it and that kind of thing and I thought, it's much for muchness. It's got a great flight time, 30 minutes, 31 minutes, they're saying, uh, measured while flying at 4.7 metres per second in windless conditions. So... If it is windier, yeah, those little motors work hard to keep things balanced, especially being so small. Um, I always look at the camera specs to see what they've done and there's nothing phenomenal. It's really, I think they're reusing some cameras from some older models and things like that. Uh, when we talk about resolutions as an example, it will do 4K resolution at a maximum of 30 frames per second. Everyone wants 60 or more, uh, which we'll get there. Some, some cameras are offering that now. Uh, you can do 2.7k, which actually that's a, I shouldn't 2.7k a lot with the drone, but again only up to 30 frames per second. So the more frames per second we can do, not some silky smooth slow mo, so we can't really do that. So it's 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 I consider it to be sort of an entry level kind of drone. It offers uh, all these quick shot modes, which we've come to know with DJI drones, the droney helix rocket circle boomerang modes. Got some panoramic photography stuff it can do. The saying maximum transmission distance is 10 kilometers unobstructed free of interference is 10 kilometers um that's FCC rating other ratings say six kilometers look if you're flying 10 k's away from yourself like wake up to yourself it's it's just way too far uh and I don't know about you but when I fly my drone if I can't see it I get a bit nervous I've got a DJI Mavic Air I get a bit nervous when I can't see it so I'm happy to fly it line of sight and be able to Actually, I flew my drone last weekend up at my holiday house and uh, around a, a block that some friends were looking at. And, um, gee, it's pretty nerve-wracking when you've got a few obstacles in the way, trees and things like that. Uh, but anyway, gave it a crack and uh, had a bit of fun. So, uh, yep, 31-minute flight time is absolutely awesome. Pretty out of so a smidgy Oh, well, it's got a five thousand two hundred milliamp hour pack, but the pack's really light. Um, it's got the new style transmitter. And previously with a lot of these transmitters, the phone went underneath the transmitter clipped on, but now it clips on the top, which is a lot easier, actually. It's a, it's a great little uh, advantage of the new transmitter, except that a lot bigger than the previous version. So they've got this tiny little drone that folds up, but then you've got this massive transmitter, so it defeats the purpose a bit. Who's it for? If you're a serious into drone flying or uh, drone photography, there's probably better better options there. If you want something that you know you've gone on a holiday and a camping trip or something, and you want to capture you know some of the scenes from the air, this is perfect. Like what I used to say that the old DJI Spark drone, you know, it's it does an adequate job. I saw some video footage um from from the 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 drone, the DJI Mini Two, and it's it's pretty good. You know, the average punter's not going to know the difference. But most operators aren't great camera operators and they normally just set everything up to auto mode and let it go, uh, rather than manually exposing shots and things like that. But I think the price point's about $749, $749. Uh, there, I think the Spark may have been a similar price point when it first came out. Um, I'm not sure if that's the Flymore combo. So I'm just let me just do some searching here, DJI Mini 2. So um, what they do is DJI will bundle up gear, so they'll fly more uh, combos. Here's one, about $950 bucks. i am seeing here, for the fly more combo. That gives you a couple of extra batteries. They've really picked up on the charging craze and um, improved charges and multi-charges and things like that, so you get that. Uh, so yes, looking at one price I'm seeing here is $949 for the DJI Mini 2 fly more combo for just the base kind of uh, kit. It's $749 from the DJI official store. And everybody seems to be playing ball around that price, around the $749 base mark. So there you have it, DJI Mini 2. If you are looking for a nice tiny little drone that you can take on a hike and uh, capture some aerial stuff in relatively calm conditions, uh, this drone will do it. So take a look, DJI Mini 2. guest time and as i mentioned earlier john lamont is my special guest and really enjoyed my chat with john uh for a couple of reasons one he's been on the scene for a very long time he actually started modeling in the late 1940s and i love talking to people that have that history seeing all the changes within the hobby over that time period which has been absolutely massive uh and so, you know, John was involved very often well in his younger years. Uh, he then had a bit of a break with family and work and all that kind of stuff, but came back to it uh, full on and started producing a newsletter, uh, primarily based along the Eastern Seaboard kind of thing with a lot of his articles. And, um, and a lot of them were event reviews and things like that. And John's managed to keep keep it going. Uh He's 87 years young, I think, from memory. He mentions it in the uh, in the um, interview. I think he's 87, and uh, so he's been doing a great job over the past. I can't remember how long was it 2009 he started, or it was even earlier, I think. Uh, and really just got in it to, to 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 help the hobby along. And so I'm always happy to talk to people like that. So please enjoy my chat with a great guy and a great contributor to our hobby, John Lamont. Well, it's my pleasure today to have a very special guest, a man that I'm really looking forward to having a chat with and and getting to know more about, and that is none other than John Lamont. John, thanks for joining me on the Flat Out RC podcast.
1: Uh, you're welcome, Andrew.
0: Now, John, uh, we're going to get into a whole bunch of different stuff, including the, uh, the Australian Model News uh, newsletter slash magazine, as I like to call it, um, a bit later, which you are well known for, but... Tell me a bit about the man, John Lamont. You know, where were you born?
1: Uh, I was born in South Melbourne, uh, not to, not not too far away from Albert Park, where we uh, used to fly our control line models um, in later years anyway. And I was certainly flying there in my early years.
0: Yeah. Now, the uh, you know, years ago, I remember going to an av- some aviation event at Albert Park Lake and saw model planes flying. But um, it was a very different era back then around that time, wasn't it? Especially around the Albert Park, South Melbourne
1: area. Oh yeah, it was uh, it was an era. There was era of control line model flying. Really, and, uh, control line had almost taken over aeromodelling. The, there were still quite a few number number of people that flew free flight models, but everybody that came into the hobby really aspired to flying control line, and uh, I suppose that that gave them the ability to fly a, a bigger variety of aircraft. You know, to fly a, a free flight, you've got to have a a model designed for that particular aspect of flying. And you can't fly Spitfires and Hurricanes and things like that very easily as free flight models, but you can fly them quite simply as a control liner. So uh, people seem to, uh, yeah, people always seem to be keen to fly the warbirds and back in those days, you could fly them on control line without any problem at all.
0: Yeah. Now actually, I've never heard anybody present that case like that before, which is, which is a hundred percent correct that, you didn't see free flight Spitfires and things like that. Now, you know, okay. Give Give us an era that we're talking about now. You know, when you start getting into aeromodelling. we're talking about the 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 fifties here.
1: Um, probably a bit earlier than that, I. Uh, <clears throat> I probably started my aero modeling in the middle to late forties, just after the war, Second World War, completely finished, and uh, I um, I sort of grew up as a, a teenager. I suppose by the time the war ended, but I had the usual interest in aeroplanes that uh, kids had in those days because that was the big deal was all those different styles of aircraft that were involved in World War II. So uh, that brought out the uh, the aeromodelling interest in me and uh, I, uh, I continued that on. And um, I was fortunate, I suppose, probably just after the war and I ran, ran into the Hearn Brothers. And the uh, the three Hearn Brothers had opened a small, small shop down in the... Uh, Underground cellars down by Queen Street in uh, in Melbourne, and they uh, they were three of them in the air force, and they seemed to take an interest in my flying. And uh, one way or another, I got involved in them. And as I grew and uh, started to work, I, I got into drawing plans. So I used to draw plans for those hobbies and uh, for their kits. Oh really? Uh, well, I was doing all that. I um, Jack Hearn took a bit of an interest in my aerobatic flying with control line and. Uh, offered to let me use a uh, one of their kits or built a build actually from one, from one of their kits and they uh, loaned me a motor because at that stage I was flying with an old ED Mark III, or not an old one, but an ED Mark III diesel, two and a half cc's and pretty limiting as far as an aerobatic aircraft went. But uh, Jack would loan me one of his um, prototype Super Skylarks that I to fly with and I used to go take that down to Albert Park from my house in South Melbourne and uh, Fly virtually every every uh, every night and um, seven days a week, pretty much, or every day seven days a week after school, and uh, developed a, a reasonable uh, standard of of aerobatic flying and control line. and And Jack offered to uh, let me fly fly his or fly a model in the um, nationals of that year, 1950. And I uh, I flew in the junior stunt that year and managed to win it, which was a bit of a surprise, but. That um, that really started me off in my aeromodeling career because by winning that I finished up. The Hearns gave me the Frog 500 that I was using in the aircraft. Um, one of the prizes was a, uh, a Hearns Obvious Tempest 60cc, which is a, a six sorry, a 10cc 60, which was a uh, copy of a McCoy 60. And then I uh, I got a third motor, which was a Durling 29 from America. So I went from flying a, a two and a half cc diesel to having three. Quite uh, powerful glow plug motors, and uh, I sort of went on and flew from there with um, bigger aircraft, and uh, until I uh, started to get interested in girls, and uh, instead of aircraft, and uh, that, that led me out of, out of the hobby, as it does to most people. I'm yeah, afraid.
0: it's a recurring it's a recurring theme
1: that you well you, it goes through. You sort of fly when you're a kid, you well uh, you meet a girl. You get interested, so you drop out of aeromodelling, and then you get married and have a family, and uh, you're still out of aeromodelling. And as the family grows, you start to introduce your kids into the aeromodelling, so you start again.
0: Yeah, well, I can I can I can definitely relate to that um, that as well. And look, so many people I in interview have the have the same story. I actually preempt it now and say, and let me guess, the girls came on the scene, and you had a bit of a break from aeromodelling. But I just want to wind back a bit that. Um, I'm really interested to understand what the scene looked like back in those, you know, late forties into the early fifties. And like you said, there were a lot of people flying control line. And when you went out down to Elba Park and in the in the parklands there and flew your control line planes, were there other people as well flying control line? Like would you regularly see people flying control line planes in the local park?
1: Well, I, I did a, a lot of flying at Albert Park on not, my, well, not, not on my own, but with one of my mates, Barry Angus, and uh, we used to go down there as a pair and the fly. But uh, <clears throat> most of my flying took place over at Box Hill if you like, because I joined the uh, Eastern Suburbs Model Club quite quite early in my career, and I um, I used to travel from South Melbourne on the train every Sunday morning across to uh, Surrey Hills and flew at Surrey Park with the Eastern Suburbs Club, and that was. People like uh, Mighty Tyrrell, Tony Farn, the Hearn brothers, uh, Reg Cooper, um, a number of other guys. I can't remember all their names now, but uh, they were very, very strong control very, very strong control on club and had some probably the leading flyers in Victoria were in that club. Uh, we used to spend Sunday mornings flying around Surrey Park with uh, big motors, you know, things like Anderson Spitfires, spark ignition motors, uh, open exhaust, uh, two or three circles on the park and making a hell of a noise. <clears throat> no one seemed to worry about it. In fact, all the locals uh, seemed to take in quite a bit of a pleasure in coming out and just standing around watching the models go round and round. Um, it was a pretty dangerous sort of an exercise because we had no protection for the spectators. So if anyone walked out too far, they were liable to get lines wrapped around them. But uh, no one, again, nobody seemed to worry too much. You know, those days you sort of looked after yourself, and uh, everybody was quite happy to have this um, infernal noise going on right through Sunday morning.
0: Yeah, yeah, probably got used to it. And the when it came to things like you mentioned, the Herns, and you know they were they, you know did wonders for the hobby here in, in especially in Melbourne. When when you'd go to Hearns Hobbies, was it a busy place? Were 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 they really thriving retailers and a lot of interest in in the hobby back then?
1: Well, there there certainly was. There was, um, I suppose, they were a younger group, I must say, that's by general purposes. Most of most of most of us were teenagers or early twenties in those days, and uh, the Hearns shop in in that area was um, in the viaduct underneath the um, railway station underneath the Flinders Railway extension down towards uh, Queen Street and uh, it was a little semicircular place and uh, you wandered in down there and uh, we used to have a, what we call our lunchtime club and a bunch of us that used to work around the city in that area used to come in every afternoon and uh, we'd have lunch at the counter there standing around talking and the Hearns boys were in there trying to make a living, mm-hmm. which must have uh, been difficult for them, but they soon do uh, be quite happy to have the people in there. Um, it was a funny little place because it was full of diesel fumes. They used to sell their motors in there and they always made sure that before they sold a motor, they could uh, demonstrate that it would run. So yeah. there was almost, uh, almost entirely a... Uh, a cloud of diesel fumes floating around the shop would uh, uh, um, quite a quite a strange atmospheric uh, feeling when you went in there. Yeah.
0: Were there, when it came to choice of models and equipment, uh, was there much of a choice? You know, Hearns was, um, I was looking at some control line stuff online the other day and I saw a lot of people flying Hearns design models, but, you know, was there a choice in, in the equipment that you could use?
1: Um, we're a bit limited in, in, with motors because just after the war, you could, it was almost impossible, the fact that it was impossible to buy American motors over the c- counter. Uh, some people used to work deals with uh, crews on ships and things like that and managed to get the odd motors into Australia, but uh, you had to know the right sort of people to do that. Um, the rest of the people, like myself, had to make do with what came out of England. And uh, the model, the motors coming out of England, of course, were very small diesels. That's what the, Well, that's what the English flyers... Still fly. In fact, they, uh, they still seem to like their little diesels. But uh, that was all you'd get hold of. So there, there was a range of mo- there were, was a very good range of models available, uh, and they covered quite a scale. And from models of uh, three quarter cc diesel engines up to uh, up to two and a half cc diesel engines. And then they, as the bigger globe plug motors start to appear out of England, things like the Frog 500. Um, the, the models started to get a little bit bigger I and mean, you could get up to uh, models that were <clears throat> 40, 48 inches wingspan or maybe a little bit larger and then uh, we actually followed the American trend from there on. We, we got away from the English style of aircraft and started to fly the American style with the larger motors. Hearns obviously were making a lot of kits in those days and uh, they covered virtually the full range of models for whatever side mode you're interested in flying
0: hmm. now the, who were some of the uh, the gun flyers back in the day who were the people that you looked up to when you were flying thought they were great pilots
1: oh well Monty Tyrrell was one of the, always one of the leading control line flyers uh Monty was a late convert from a free flight and uh, he used to, uh, to scorn the control line models for quite a while, but he eventually had to join them and he became a, a very, very good control line flyer, a very good aerobatic flyer. Uh, Tony Farnham was another one. Tony was a very good aerobatic flyer. Uh, Rube Johnson, who was, well, all these people now have passed on, I'm afraid. Uh, so people around now probably wouldn't even know who most of them were, other than maybe Tony. We know, Well, see, I've met Tony Um later
0: in his life and uh but um these names though if you've been in the hobby for a long time like the name monty Tyrrell lives on through the pakenham club and their monty, monty Tyrrell days and of course the name hearns has been around for a long time and um you know it's amazing how some of these people have really left their mark uh on the hobby you know
1: um it's probably not as appreciated as quite as well as it might be but, but uh, the uh, the models that are around these days, so sort of know, they know of know hobbies, but they uh, they would probably have no idea of its early origins and the uh, the sort of details of the three Hearn brothers. But
0: yeah, um, I met I met one of them. Oh, I think he's passed on now, but I met one of them maybe four or five years ago. He was he was well into his nineties, and he turned up to an indoor. Yeah, fire. that was Jack. Jack, yeah, and. It,
1: he ter- that was, the, that was the three yeah mm-hmm. now
0: he turned up to a model uh, an indoor event down in Donvale um and yeah. I had a chat with him and he introduced himself and off I, of course I knew the Hearns name I'm, I'm actually one of the Hearns son is a, is a is an airline captain and he flies with my brother and so you know that there was another oh, connection to the Hearns but uh,
1: uh Adrian. that's his yes
0: um, that's right Adrian and uh, and, was a uh, yeah, yeah, and um, but yeah, so I met Jack, and I felt like I was in royal, uh, in, in front of royalty. I because as a child, you know, I knew the Hearns name. I'd I'd read about the Hearn family and and hear about them in magazines and things like that. And I could not believe that he was standing in front of me. And he was, I think, about ninety one at that time, and he said he was still flying. He still would go out to the local park with an electric plane. A foamy, and he'd go and fly, and I was just absolutely amazed, uh, you know, at, at and the, having the yeah. opportunity to to meet, you know, one of those, you know, major players in the hobby in the early days. But um, yeah, I, I, I'm assuming he's probably passed on on now. But, um,
1: yes, but... he did. He he died. He died just um early in the year at the age of 99. Oh, so yeah, gee.
0: But no, it was, it was so I, I I look, oh, yeah, Yeah, the um. So okay, so let's get back to your story. You were you were flying control line, and uh,
1: you, you you stopped at what age? Um, probably about twenty-three or twenty-four when I when I married. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. I, I've on a series of these routes over my my lifetime. I I seem to about every twenty years. I uh, I I've been out of the model for a while modelling for a while, and about every twenty years I return again. And yeah. I um, stopped, stopped flying in my early 20s when I married and we had a family, as I said. And then uh, once the family were established, I started flying again. I used to fly with the McLeod Club, as a, again, and flying control line models. And uh, then I, um, I continued, well, I suppose I should go back before that because I actually got into radio control in about 1954. That was just before I married, actually.
0: In 54 I, you got into radio control?
1: Yeah, I, I, yeah I Well, it was it was this, it was the really the early days of, of radio control, and, uh, and we used to fly basically free flight models with a uh, an operable rudder, and that was the only other control you had. So you made up in the front that you started off and ran flat out with no cutout or control of it at all, and uh, just a rudder on the back end to steer the model around after a fashion. So you, you sort of hand launched the model, flew it around for a while, hopefully kept it within range, <clears throat> and then uh, waited for the engine to run out of fuel before you could land. And once it ran out of fuel, you landed from wherever you happened to be. So it was a pretty hit or miss sort of a caper, but uh, <clears throat> but it was uh, it was the earliest form of control that we had. And, and it,
0: well, I've heard that the systems weren't very reliable back then. What was your experience like with them?
1: Uh, <clears throat> Very, 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 very unreliable equipment. Very basic equipment, mind you, but very unreliable. I mean, <clears throat> we used to joke that we, uh, if, if the sun went behind a cloud, all our radios would cut out because the, uh, the um, adjustments in them would all, all be lost because of the temperature change. Yeah. And, <clears throat> you know, these, these things used to change, used to operate on a very, very low voltage change in the receiver. And uh, that just tripped the mechanism that used to allow the runner to turn through a circle actually yeah so left right left right left right and uh, you had to um, you had to keep a uh, fairly clear mind on we had been we had been turning previously and if you wanted if you turn were're turning right and you wanted to turn right again uh, you had to go through the left rudder. so you'd have to go through a circuit and uh, go left right left right until you struck the right point oh, i couldn't so do it
0: i would lose i would just i would lose the plot i wouldn't know what i've pressed and I, it just amazes me that you're able to land these planes you, obviously,
1: well,
0: they must have been trimmed very well, though.
1: They were stable free flight models, really. I and mean, what we were doing was interrupting the flight of a stable free flight model by operating a rudder. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so if you took your finger off, and um, the rudder would return to neutral, and the thing would just be a normal free flight model, and you could always get out of problems like that. But uh, if there was a, uh, a failure in the radio, of course, the rudder would generally lock on the, one way or the other and that would be a spiral dive into the ground and a fair sort of a rebuild.
0: Yeah. But,
1: um, but it, it was it was interesting and uh, yeah, we we had um, the first flight across the bay in 1954 when, for some reason rather the Herald the Sun newspaper, not the Herald Sun those days, it was the Sun, Sun newspaper offered a prize for the first uh, radio-controlled model to fly across hobson's bay which is from williamstown to El- elwood
0: yeah that's a, they landed it was it elwood or elstonwick park they they landed I, I remember reading about this in airborne magazine in the 80s i think it was in the 80s but um well, and it, that was was it Hearn flying that or was it far oh, who was it fun
1: oh it? We, we all really met everyone had a go at it yeah um, Keith heard it, but uh we had a raf crash boat uh on on a tap from the raf and we we had one person on the beach at Williamstown launching the models and flying them out to the sea.
0: Yeah.
1: Another pilot that, and then on the crash boat who flew it across the water and a third pilot on the ground at Elwood to land the thing. Nominally if right we got it there. Yeah. Um, and, of course, it, <clears throat> everyone was, then was on the uh, on, really on 27 megacycles, I think, the, uh, the um, citizen's band radio. Yeah. But... <clears throat> it was strictly one Radio One at the time, so you had to switch from one uh, switch one on and switch one off and make sure that you only had one operating. And uh, the whole thing was a pretty hit and miss affair I mean, none of us had any idea how fast the models were going to fly. Yeah. So the the guesstimate on how much fuel you would need was you know any anyone's knowledge. But um, one way or another, Keith managed to get his model over there and landed on the ground, so he won.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, my, my model got across the water but disappeared into the, in the area of St Kilda because I had too much fuel on board. Um, many of them, and mo- most of them, in fact, finished up in the water uh, because their engines stopped before they ever got uh, clear of the bay. So it was an interesting exercise. Again, it, it drew a very ba- a very large crowd, both at Williamstown and at, uh, at Elwood. That, well, that's right. Like
0: when I read that article that, uh, that, I remember reading it and it said there was a big crowd waiting at Elwood for the planes to land, but it's, it's not a short distance really. I I, I come from down that way. You know, mm. I used to travel down to Elstonwick park and watch people flying gliders. I was living in Brighton and at the time kind of thing, but um, yeah, that's it's uh, you know I've ne- It never happened today to be able to do something like that,
1: but well, it happened again later on. I think it was the 19s around that must have been about nineteen sixty or so, yeah. early sixties, and uh, they uh, they did the same sort of thing. But flew from a helicopter, They didn't use a crash boat. Right. They used a helicopter.
0: Yeah, uh, I remember that, reading about that as
1: well. Yeah, that was with multi that was with multi channel stuff, and that was uh, re- really a pretty straightforward exercise by then. When I mean, the radios were reasonably reliable and the airplanes were good and. They had um, full full house controls in them, so you could handle the aircraft quite well. Yeah.
0: So the so the, the model that you used to try to get across the bay, you said that it was carrying too much fuel. So what, it was just too heavy, the plane, with all the fuel in it, or what was the problem that
1: you no, had with that? No, no, there's no problem with the uh, the weight of the models. I mean, as I say, they were just stick mm. and tissue aeroplanes, and they were light enough. It was just a question of not, you know, no no previous experience at the thing and not, not understanding <clears throat> how fast the models were going to fly because they actually flew quite fast. And they were a bit faster than the crash boat with a with tailwind and plus the speed of the, you know, the airspeed of the aircraft. They were traveling quite quickly. And um, we, we, we were, I think everyone that was involved in the thing, you know, well, greatly underestimated the, uh, the amount of fuel that we would, or over- overestimated the amount of fuel we carried. Um, I'm sure I'm quite sure that very few people would have been would have been fortunate enough to have got down on the other side because the engines just wouldn't have stopped. Oh, so that's
0: yeah. So you had to really make sure you had the right amount of fuel so that the uh, you get the plane to stop and glide down for a landing. I,
1: that's- I, it. I was saying, it was all guesswork. You know, we, none of us were really prepared for it. It was just one of those things that someone decided to be a good idea. To, the newspaper was backing it, and uh, we were all a bit enthusiastic to have a go and see what happened.
0: Did you feel like it was something special at the time, that you felt you were part of something that was sort of groundbreaking for the hobby?
1: Oh, it was different. I'm not about groundbreaking because it's not a thing that's continued on. We, I mean, it, it would be a simple thing. Well, I have been involved in recent times with um, duration flights with Anthony Mott. Yeah. And um, you can sort of set yourself with the current gear and the equipment that they've got now. You can set yourself to do virtually anything with the model airplane that you wish yeah, to do. That's true. But in those, in those days, it was a, it was an unknown factor in everything. You know, the, the models, the engines, the fuel, ammunitions, the operation of the radio. No, no one had any great confidence in any of them.
0: Mm. So, Were you? You weren't involved with uh, there was a flight that was done many years ago with a, a radio controlled plane across the Nullarbor
1: plane. Um, and I remember uh, that, that, that was Jeff Chuck. I think that. Um, Jeff Tuck well, no, it might not have been Jeff Tuck but um, there are a few people that set out to do distance flights long distance flights mm. and uh, that was probably one of them but I was actually out of the game for probably the best part of 30 years I suppose at one stage because from the early 30s I um, decided I was going to play golf and I went off playing golf for 30 or 40 years and uh, I didn't actually return I returned to modelling in the um early 90s i suppose and you did a little bit of control line flying at uh, down at the knoxfield in the um in the monte cyril competition it was a memorial competition for monte cyril and i used to go down to that and fly in that just because uh, tony Farner and i used to have a bit of a private competition between the two of us to see how we got go with a couple of uh, middle-aged men yeah uh, and i uh, that, that sort of got me back into modelling and at that stage. I was sort of starting to get a bit too old for golf, and I actually got back into modelling back in the it would have been the seventies, mid seventies or eighties or so. And um, in the in the rel- relatively early days of um, proportional equipment, and uh, I sta- I started modelling again then, and uh, joined the scale group. At that stage, I got a bit of an interest in scale models, and decided that I'd. Uh, sort of make that, make that my uh, my aim in modelling and to build scale models. Mm.
0: The, uh, were you amazed sort of when you came back at the change in the hobby and the gear that was available?
1: Um, yeah, well, when I saw the radios, because I'd been out of touch with it really completely. I'd, I'd gone along to air shows and seen people flying model aeroplanes, but I'd never got into any detail. But when I found out about the um the types of uh, engines that were available, and then the radios, and the proportional control that was available at that stage, I uh, I was quite enthusiastic about it again. Although I, uh, I, had to sort of teach myself, I had to sort of teach myself to fly again, but um, but it was um, it was a different experience altogether. I mean, you could build. If I found then you could build a model and be. 100% certain that it was going to fly for a starter and also 100% certain that the radio was going to work every time. Mm-hmm.
0: So you, you came back, you got into the radio control and you got into the scale scene. What were some of the planes that you built back then, some of the scale planes?
1: Um, I, I never really built very many models. We didn't break, any, break many models either, so that was always good. But um, I suppose I... Uh, I got a couple of kits from Tony Farn and that was really what started me off again. I, I actually ran into Tony one day, when he was still over in the Crown Street shop and or factory rather, and uh, I um, he got me back and interested again. And uh, I I bought a couple of kits from him, and I I built a, a Piper Cub, which I flew for years and years, and uh, a bit like Grandpa's axe, you know, I crashed it a couple of times and rebuilt it, and uh, it became a new aeroplane again, but. Uh, it was uh, it was a good experience, and I uh, I built a, I scratch built a few airplanes from there on of my own, and uh, but I, I haven't really built all that many scale aircraft. Uh, it's just a, a, I mean, the current one that I have now that I fly. fly well, I haven't planned it for a year or two, I must admit now. But the last one I was flying was a, a spacewalker, and that's probably 20 years old now. I suspect it's to about 22 years old, I think. So uh, it's been around for a long time.
0: Did you ever compete in scale competitions or any other competitions when you came back or not?
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I used to fly. I, flew, I joined the Foreign Flying Scale Aircraft Association, and uh, we used to have regular competitions. So I flew in all those. I sort of a small degree of success, I guess, but um, but it was interesting. It was a challenge again to build the model, and because there's a builder of the model rule in that, and uh, so there's a challenge of building a model for start, and then the challenge of uh, flying the uh, flying the schedule it's set for whatever type of aircraft that you happen to fly so yeah. and what, what where
0: what was your main club back then in the scale association
1: yeah where were you flying oh wouldn't it the scale association never never had a fool of its own they really they rely on the goodwill of the clubs in actual fact and uh, the general, uh, general we flew all over victoria and um I suppose, um, as far as the north border, we, we flew up at Albury, we uh, we flew around all the suburban clubs, we flew around all the, the close-in regional clubs. And, um, we used to travel all around the place, I suppose, purely because we didn't have a field of our own to fly from. But um, the, the Scale Association is made up of just a, a group of people from various uh, VMAA-affiliated clubs who have an interest in Scale aircraft as well. And it's just a special interest group. And, uh, like most special interest groups, they don't have a home of their own. They just wander around and uh, fly wherever they get an opportunity. So we're talking about what mid about mid eighties by this stage in your in your
0: flying career when you were really getting into the scale thing.
1: Yeah, the middle eighties to early early nineties, I suppose, and uh, that was when I really started flying again. And uh, I, I I flew scale models up until well, three or four years ago, and. Uh, I um for no particular reason I suppose I uh, I haven't been flying very much. I in actual fact I've gone back to flying control line models again. There's been a bit of a resurgence
0: recently, I think, of control line flying. I know that uh, you know there, a few people doubt the Doncaster Club are flying control line, and I know the Pakenham field uh, has put a control line circle in. So I think it's one of those I think it's one of those things where if other people see 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 it happening, say at a flying field, it attracts people to it and they want to, then they go and buy a model and they get into it and it builds sort of a, a community around the control line flying. So it's good to see, you know, you know I, I, I tell this story about my son who's, what, 13 now and oh, maybe three years ago, I said to him, Charlie, why don't you come flying with me? We'll fly, I'll teach you how to fly a plane. And he said to me, Daddy, what are those, I, I want to try the one that, you hold on to and I said I'll control on he goes yeah and I said to him why why do you want to do that and he said well I think I'd be able to do that because I'm I'm holding on to it and I thought that's a a really smart point that it's it's different to that radio control it's that physical connection to the plane now um and I didn't I never thought of it and he was he would have been you know nine or something at the time when he said that to me I thought well it's a good point yeah I've
1: heard I've heard a number of other people say the same sort of thing and it's 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 true in that respect that you, you do actually have a connection with the aircraft. Uh, you know, to fly a radio model, you, you're totally disconnected from it. You're relying on radio signals that you can't see and you don't, you don't know anything about them except that you know that a, you move a stick one way, a control surface or somewhere on the airplane is going to move in the same fashion. But uh, with, a, with a control line model, you're actually connected to the aircraft and you can actually feel the effect of the aircraft flying through the wires. It's... um. It's it's a difficult thing to describe, I suppose, but you you do actually have a, a genuine connection with the aircraft that's fifty or sixty feet away at the other end of a wire cable.
0: Yeah, I was watching a, a video recently of a control line competition, almost like a a race, and they had three pilots flying at the same time, and it's it's quite funny to watch because you know you can just see these people dancing around in this you know center circle, but the thing that amazes me is how they can remain standing. Oh. Did you ever get dizzy going around in circles? Because I just have this picture if I tried it that I would just get dizzy and fall on the ground.
1: Well, you can you can get dizzy and, and people do, but that, that was one of the things that I had to sort of take some care with when I started back again because at that stage I was a, getting to the elderly gentleman stage and I was a bit wary of myself as to whether I could continue to go around in circles, but it's um it's a bit like... um. Riding a bike, I suppose, is always something I, I can refer to. And uh, once you've learned to fly, you seem to be able to fly. Uh, the physical side of it, of standing there and going around in circles without falling over is something else again. But I've always found that generally, if you're concentrating on the aircraft and watching, what the, watching the aircraft itself to see what it's doing, you, you don't take too much notice of the background and you don't notice the, the trees going past you at a fair, fairly quick high rate of knots. Um if you the more you concentrate on the aircraft, the, the less distracted you are by the you know, scenery around you, and you uh, you feel quite comfortable with it. That, that may not apply to everybody, but it's um, it's, it's I've always found that it's uh, never been a problem with me when I've been not been flying maybe for 10 or 15, 20 years, and I go back and fly control line again. It's uh, you know, just like water well, off a duck's back, you just do it,
0: yeah something I've got to try it's it's getting harder to find control line gear but uh it is still available there's I think there's a shop in queensland that uh specializes in, in control line gear but uh it 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 is on my bucket list mate I've joined the packenham club now and they're doing some work on their control line circle so maybe that might get me get me cracking into it now <laughs> events I'm a big fan of model flying events and uh, were you, were you the kind of person that really uh, liked to visit events, or you just stay at your local club?
1: Oh no, I uh, yeah,
0: yeah. As, as a
1: member of the VFSAA, we used to travel around, as I said, and uh, you tend to meet a lot of people around the clubs. And by doing that, of course, and uh, I um, I I I've always liked competition. I um, even yeah, you know, when I used to well. In the early days of, <coughs> of competitive control line flying, it was aerobatics, and then I, uh, when I early got into the early days of radio control flying, it was um, was, fly, it was flying aerobatics and that too, and uh, that was always an interest and a bit of a challenge. But uh, the um, I'm back into it again now. I'm back into control line, I, I I'm flying. In my, I'm only flying in one competition, I must admit, and. Uh, I, um, I'm, I'm well below the standard of the guys that fly top level aerobatics in control line these days. Oh, but- i don't,
0: I don't know how they do it, John. I, I've, I've I've seen some people fly aerobatics, and it just it fascinates me how you can fly aerobatics with a control line plane. And it it's, it's that kind of thing. It's it, there's a lot of if anyone out there that's listening's never seen aerobatic control line flying, jump onto YouTube or something and and take a look. But it is just jaw dropping to watch people fly aerobatics. You know with a plane hanging off yeah. a string is just amazing.
1: Yes, it's, it's very precise flying, and it's um, you've got to have a, a fair bit of nerve too to uh, to manage it because they're you know, you've got to you generally got to perform at a relatively low altitude, and you, you know very well if you make a mistake, your airplane going to be wiped off. So, uh, you've got to have the confidence to, uh, to overlook that and uh. On and, and fly the schedule, and uh, the, the FAI schedule that they, the top-level flyers fly to is is quite demanding. Um, as, far as, as far as for the pilot and the aircraft as well, I and mean, the aircraft has got to be a, a a well-trimmed aircraft which will turn very sharply and uh, and respond virtually instantly to any control input that's given to it. Uh, and the pilot has got to be uh, smart enough to be uh, to be able to handle that and. Uh, you know anticipate anticipate any any problem that's going to come up and try and compensate for it before it uh, causes a problem with the airplane so it's it's a it's, it's a difficult thing to do
0: yeah now australian model news uh, a lot of people would know your name from it's a free publication online publication that you've been huh. putting together now tell me when did when did that all start that when did you start producing that uh that
1: magazine well it, it goes back a fair way now back in the early 90s when i joined the scale association i'd been in the scale association for a couple of years and the guy that was doing the newsletter editor for the newsletter um, publication for the uh, the saa wanted to stop and uh, i put my hand up and said i'll give it a try and i i did that for about 10 or 12 years and uh, for one reason or another i decided i'd had enough at that stage and i uh, I dropped out of the editorship uh, of the, ship of the uh, VFSA newsletter, but I found that I still had a, a lot of people I wanted to keep in touch with. So I decided I'd start up a little newsletter of my own. And, and that's what it was. It was only a little 12-page newsletter when I started. That was in about 2009. And uh, it gradually drew a bit of interest and it, it changed its format a few times. And I, I hope it developed into a better-looking production. But uh, at the same time, it, it I, I travel i was happy to travel around to quite a lot of events myself and i had a, quite a lot of people in the state that were able to give me some information so i decided i'd keep it going as a as a private publication and uh, i deliberately made it a free issue because i felt that if i did that i had no um, responsibility to the subscribers to finance to provide financial assistance or anything or to, re, to have any handling of money involved in it no uh, no affiliations with anybody. It was purely a thing of my own. And uh, so that was the reason for being a freebie. And uh, I, I enjoyed doing, I, I did enjoy, and I still do enjoy uh, getting along talking to people and taking the photographs and producing a, a bi-monthly newsletter. And uh, it seems to have been relatively successful. It's, um, you know, aeromodels are a pretty cheap bunch. They don't like to spend more money than they need to when they're in their hobby, but so I think the fact that it's free has probably got a bit of an attraction to
0: it, but um... well, it it's lasted. Well, you've been uh, sixty six issues. I think it's issue sixty six is that, uh, is what you're up to, and that's just a a, a massive ev- uh, you know effort. And the thing that I always liked uh, like about it is the event coverage that you do. And I was always amazed because you know you know that I produced a magazine, and and it's hard work. I don't think people appreciate it how how much work goes into trying to put a a publication together of any variety around the hobby because you have to be out there in the field writing the stories talking to the people uh taking the photographs uh to be Mm. able to do it and it was i was amazed at how many events you would actually get to uh and 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 document them and 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 do such a good job a job at it and uh so obviously you, you you've enjoyed. Did you have a background in, in any of that in your in your professional working career, or it was something that you just enjoyed doing uh, on side? No, really.
1: uh, I was an, I was an engineer by by profession. I started off as a draftsman, which is what led me to drawing the plans for Hearn's hobbies. But then I uh, I, was, I, was, I worked in process engineering in the paper industry and in the pulp and paper industry, and that was that was my uh, my uh, nine to five job. And the the era modeling part it was just a a sideline.
0: Yeah, well, it's uh, it's good that it's uh, still going. It must be hard uh, at the moment trying to get a lot of content because, you know, this year with uh, being locked down, we haven't been able to run any events. And I think I mentioned to you on the phone the other day, I'm sort of lucky that I stopped the magazine when I did because I would have really, really struggled this year in trying to get enough content for the magazine. But uh, how are you getting... You've got a number of contributors, I've noticed. Um, are they? Uh, have you got a good network of contributors that can help you put the news newsletter together?
1: Well, I'm relying relying entirely on contributions at the moment because, of course, we're we're not allowed in Victoria. We're not allowed to go outside the door, really, and we certainly can't go to flying fields. And uh, as a consequence, there's been absolutely nothing going on here for what, since March, I suppose. Yeah, uh, it's been dead. I I, I thought I was in big trouble right from the start of the year, but um, fortunately, uh, people have contacted me, or I've contacted people and they've responded with... uh, information on their workshop activities and that's really what's kept me going for the last uh, five or six months is the uh, the amount of work that people are putting in, in their workshops how
0: can you how can people access the newsletter where can they get it from
1: Uh well i i, I have a, I have a contact address a contact email address uh, in, in every newsletter so people can contact me directly but I do find really that a lot of people get a, a copy or are shown a copy by one of their mates in the club, and uh, that generates a lot of interest. Um, some of the clubs distribute the newsletter around among their own people, or put it in their uh, on their website for their people to read, um, and I generate a few more from that. But the Bendigo out-
0: the Bendigo Club is good at doing that. They've got, I think, a page dedicated to to uh, Australian model news, um, and oh, that's where I see a lot of. Yeah. Them.
1: Yeah, Old Bendigo Club does. Is it? it's, 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 two or three clubs do that and some of them just distribute it privately to their own people, just send it to their, their own membership list. But uh, but I've, I've got a the subscriber list of probably the best part of 700, I think. Seven, 700, 750 people that I send it out directly to myself. Sure, but, good. Uh, but I, I don't really know how many copies or how many people read it. I've I've got some overseas following. I have to send a, a few overseas to people one way or another. Um, I, have re- I have readers in America, Canada, and Italy, England. Um, surprising, actually, I, I, at one stage I was running out a web page, and I'm in a bit of trouble with that now. But, uh, trying to maintain that but i um I was running a web page and it popped the newsletter popped up in some very strange places I was quite surprised and I had to look around to see where people originated from
0: yeah yeah but, uh, it is amazing how you know even down here in remote Australia that we can produce a piece of content and you know there's people all over the world that will uh will grab it and now with a lot of the digital platforms you can you know with this podcast I can see where people are listening from and you know there's a lot of people in the u s and uh in the UK, um, in, through Europe, that that actually listen to this kind of stuff, and uh, so we, we've got better ability nowadays to see where people are coming from. But uh, no, it's 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 really things things have definitely changed, and it, it's it's one of those things I'd love to get your opinion on. You 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 you've seen. You know you were there in the very early days of aero modeling really, and the control line and then the early days of radio control, and then you fast forward after having a break, seeing sort of the modernisation of the hobby, and then right through to nowadays, do you you know what, what do you see as the future for aero modeling?
1: Um, it depends how you, how you, how you, how you consider, what you consider to be aero modeling, I suppose, to some degree. The uh, the old style aerobuilding where you uh, start with a plan and a stack of bolts and wouldn't build an aeroplane yourself. I think that's that's just about disappeared, and uh, the, the only places where you see it remaining almost entirely now is in um, scale, where if, because it, and only for the shoot pure pure reason. If you want to build a scale model, you've really got to do it yourself. Um, but every other Avenue in, in in modelling has turned into a um you know, a buy it and fly it sort of a deal, uh, whether it be free flight with a control line or any other any other competition. It's uh, it, it's settled out at a stage where someone in someone in the world manufactures the aeroplane and someone else someone else in the world flies it and uh, competes with it, and um I'm afraid that's the uh, that's a bit to the detriment detriment of, of modelling as we used to know it, but. Uh, that's probably just a general course of things. It's 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 more of a sport now than a hobby. I think it's uh, the um, the competitive side of it is really what's keeping everything going.
0: Mm. Do you think that you know the uh, the younger folk are missing out on on aspects of the hobby that you experienced when you were younger? Like, do you, do you feel that we we're missing out on an experience that was great?
1: Well. Depends on your outlook, I suppose. I mean, we, we grew up in an era where if you wanted to do something, you had to go and do it yourself. Um, there were very few people around to, to help you. I mean, the people that were there would help you, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't as simple as it is these days. If you, if you can go into a shop and look at the aeroplane and say, I like that one, I'll have it, and there you are. You set up an aeroplane ready to go. All you've got to do is learn to fly it. But um, it's... Um, yeah, it's just, just the way things have gone. I mean, there are so many things around for young people these days with the internet and video games and things like that. It's it's has uh, got a lot of competition these days, I think, and there are people, I think, generally speaking, are not prepared to sit down for two months or three months or maybe two years in the case of a, a large-scale model and, and build an aeroplane sort of every night and every weekend and uh, wait you know, months to be able to fly it. It's... Um, just it just doesn't work that way anymore. People want almost instantaneous gratification, and the other unfortunate part of it, I think, is the fact that when people have got hold of an aeroplane, learned to fly it, they often disappear because they say, "Well, I've been there, I've done that, I know how to fly. What's what's next?"
0: Um, I, I definitely, I think, I, I agree with you. I think that one of the one of the disappointments I see in the that's, that's happened as, well, I call it the, the age of the internet, which is I think is, is, you know, there's a lot of positives and there's a lot of negatives as a result of it. But that willingness to commit to something, a project that was not going to be easy, that was going to take you, you know, a number of months maybe to, to complete. That whole, if you look what's behind that and that, that drive and that, that hard, the hard work that's required to get to that end result... I think that our our younger generation, my, my kids' generation, they don't, like you said, they just don't want to make the effort because I can just go and buy it off the shelf and just consume it. And I actually think that's going to take society down a path that's actually not good because basically what we're saying is nobody wants to make an effort anymore and why should I make an effort? And you know, you would have experienced over the years that there's always a reward at the end of that, that effort that you put in there and you appreciate things a lot more once you've made that effort. And, and often you, you come out the other end a lot more educated and a lot wiser as a result of making that effort. And I think that's, that's probably the biggest disappointing thing, which I'm 47 years of age. And I can, I can remember the days when, you know, in 1980 something, I built an aeroflight glider and I had to sit down and it didn't happen in a weekend. Like, you can build an ARF glider in a weekend nowadays and be flying it you know, Monday morning if you wanted to. And the look and the 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 pride that you had once you finished that model and you would have it sitting in the living room and before you went to go and fly it, it's just those little things. I think we just miss out on nowadays, which which is disappointing, but you know, I, I know that my kids are dry, growing up in a different generation and they'll have different experiences and their world will probably be a bit different to to what mine is, but um, I don't know. I don't know whether it's going to be positive or negative. But I hope. I hope it turns out to be positive for them. But it's definitely different.
1: Yeah. I, I can well remember talking to Tony Farnham when the first of the ARF models started to appear, and uh, Tony uh, was pushing those pretty hard, and he made a very successful career out of selling ARF models. And, uh, and I, I said to him earlier in the piece, I said, you "Now, I don't really like them, and I don't think they're going to take off. They're, they're sort of not." The hobby as we knew it, and Tony said, "Oh, I'll give it a few more years, and it'll uh, it'll take over." And I think that's the way it's gone. It certainly has taken over. And uh... do you know what's interesting, John? That
0: I've got some magazines uh, from the UK, and they range from sort of the nineteen sixty five to early seventies period, and um, Mm. beautiful, beautifully written magazines. That that traditional old style of writing and a really formal way of writing, and they're just entertaining just to read read the, the the language and the, the English words you know, on the page, but they they were complaining back in between 65 and 70, they were writing articles about the decline of the hobby because nobody wanted to build. They could see it happening Ooh. back then. And, and it, fast forward, it's something that hasn't changed, but I think I've got, it's, it's interesting. I've got some friends that do enjoy building from kits and, uh, definitely the industry for kits has has been decimated but what's brought some of it back and like you were saying in that scale scene is um the ability to laser cut um plans now so they are dig- digitizing plans putting them through a laser cutter and so now you can they basically cut on demand so if you want that super chipmunk with you know for 100 cc gaser you know large scale plane you just place an order the company will cut the kit and they'll give it to you um, to go and build. Then there's sort of these cottage companies, especially in the U.S., that are making the fiberglass cows for them and the canopies and all that kind of stuff. Um, so there is this undercurrent of, but you have to be a really, really avid modeler because it takes skill and a lot of time to you know produce, you know, to, to get to the end result. And it's something that I look forward to doing when I retire. I, I, I always want I want to build a super chipmunk, and I want it to be big, a bit like um you know uh, Tim DeHaan, who we've had on the podcast has also um, been in uh, your newsletter. Tim is really getting into that building side of things. So it's sort of the, you're 100 right. It's the scale guys that are really holding on to that. Everybody else really isn't. But um, yeah. it's there. But it's like you said, it's not. We don't, ha- we don't have to do it. That's the thing, I think, that uh, you know we don't have to go and build a k- kit. We can go and buy that aerobatic plane that's an ARF. And we can spend a weekend putting it together and we'll be off flying at the next weekend kind of thing, um, and as long as that choice is there. But the thing is, the other thing I think – oh, here's a question for you. Over your time um, flying model planes, do you think that the hobby has become more affordable or less
1: affordable? um it's an interesting question i i think it's become more affordable because you uh, when when you sort of look at the uh, the cost of the cost of radio in particular and um yeah when when i'm talking about radios i'm not talking about top-end radios where you can pay an awful lot of money for something that's got all the bells and whistles on it but what, what the sort of radio equipment you need to operate an airplane these days is relatively relatively cheap um, the models are still maintaining a, a reasonable value, um, and and I think yeah that when you consider it by comparison with um, weekly or a monthly wage, I, I think modelling generally is probably probably cheaper. It may not continue that way because I just saw a uh, mention just a while ago that balsa wood was going to become very expensive because of the demand on the uh, on the material for. Uh, of all things, the um, wind generators.
0: True, yeah. Um, I, I read that in your latest um, latest issue of the newsletter, and 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 you're right. You know, I was in China a few years ago talking to a manufacturer, and and he was telling me how expensive balsa is becoming. It's hard, he said, it's hard to find good quality balsa, and yeah, it's getting more and more expensive. And you know, the other thing he said to me, it's very hard to find workers that want to work with balsa in dusty environments. And he was pushing more towards building composite planes. Um, but the composite planes don't work well in smaller sizes. They, they work, they're okay when you get up to the, you know, 60cc sort of an up kind of thing. But in the smaller size, they're just too heavy uh, and the wings are too heavy and that kind of thing. So you're stuck with sort mm-hmm. of the balsa. But um, yeah, there's a lot of things working against us really in the hobby. Uh, that's why I appreciate what we have and the effort that a lot of the manufacturers go to. And, and I've met a number of them and none of them are making a lot of money. None of them are making money. Everybody thinks that they're these people just driving around in Ferraris and that kind of stuff. And um, and what I've found is that a lot of them are really passionate about about the hobby and into flying, and that's why they do it because it's just that they love it. You know, it's their passion. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, we've got we've definitely got a few things uh, working against us. And and I agree. I think that it has become more affordable. I know that because when I was a kid reading Airborne magazine in the '80s and looking at the prices, going, gee. Oh, I could never be able to afford half of this gear, and now you can go and buy a radio for 150 bucks, 200 bucks. That's going to outstrip yeah. anything that was available in the mid 80s, and it's it's you know it's super reliable at the same time. And and then of course we've got the electric aircraft that came into it. Did you get into electric aircraft at all? No,
1: yeah. I haven't. I've, I've dabbled a little bit with indoor electric airplanes, but I uh, I'm a bit a bit too much of the old school. I like a big noise, big oily noisy yeah. motor up the front. No, and that's what the real that's what I like to have as well. Yeah, no, I like I I there's something about it
0: when during this lockdown I pulled out a plane just to do a bit of maintenance. I thought i I want to just check the tuning because I was never happy with it. It'd never been it was a gasser, 30, 30cc, and I I'd never tuned it after you know the initial tuning after the run-in phase. I thought I'll just give it a run. That feeling of just starting that plane and the engine ticking over. I don't know about you, but I just get excited. It, it, it feels like you've achieved something. I don't know, it's, it's weird, but it's like the electric motors is just plug the battery in and the, yeah, you know it's going to go. But with that that the noise and the vibration and everything, it's just something about it. I, I generally fly, personally, I, I've, a lot of the smaller aircraft, you know, under that 60-inch size, I have, um, they're electric, but anything sort of 30cc and up is what I fly generally, and that's all. Gas powered, petrol powered um, models, you know, as well, but um, but that smell of nitro, you know, when you you've been out to the field and you get that that nitro exhaust fume through your through your pants and things like that, it's, oh, it's something that I yeah, that I it's mostly it. oil, yeah, it's mostly oil on your pants, but never mind, yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, it is oil, you know, the the smoke coming out, you know, that kind of thing, but um. Yeah. I don't enjoy cleaning up nitro models, I must say. I don't like cleaning cleaning the greasy mess sometimes that can be left by them. But uh, anyway. I, I was, uh, that's,
1: just, that's the small chore you've got to put in after a happy day's flying.
0: Yeah. Do you find that after a, a day's flying, you're just in a better mood?
1: Um, Probably, but probably not so much if I've got another 100 miles or so to drive home. That takes a bit of the shine off it. but. yeah. Uh, but uh, no, I think yeah, you get a lot of you get a lot of satisfaction, particularly if you've got an aeroplane that you have put a bit of work into yourself that you may have built it built it entirely yourself, and the fact that you can go out and have a, a day's flying, hopefully successfully and without any crashes, and uh, you get home with a model in one piece, all ready for the next event, next event that you want to go to. It's um, it's it's very satisfying. Well, I found it very satisfying.
0: where do you what's left for you with aero modeling what do you uh you know what are your future plans continue doing what you're doing and as long as you can do it or...
1: but my future plans are getting very short i'm afraid at my age i'm i'm, I'm 87 now and uh I, as i say I'm, I'm not i haven't played a control i haven't flown the radio models for probably two or three well with the exception of an indoor small indoor electric so i've had, had a couple of flies with them but uh I haven't done any really decent sort of flying, outdoor flying for quite a while other than a bit of control line flying. And uh, I um, I really can't see myself, well, I'm certainly not going to last another 20 years. And so I can't get, sort of go through my usual 20-year cycle and say, so I'll come back again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's not going to happen. But, um, but I, I so, you know, I'm still maintain interest. I'm looking very, 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 forward very much to getting back out on the flying field with people. And uh, you know, photographing their models and still producing the newsletter and just talking to my friends. Yeah, i made a lot of friends over the years all around Australia and um, outside the uh, outside Australia for that matter too. And uh, I, uh, I'm quite thankful for that. It's probably, you know, I, I would never have been a good enough golfer to make friends like that. And I um, haven't turned in any other fields of sport to travel around. So, yeah, uh, Aero Molly's been kind to me, I feel.
0: Yeah, well, you're doing a good job with the newsletter as well. And I'm a big supporter of anyone that's producing aeromodelling modeling content here in Australia. Cause I think the more, more people that can wave the flag for the hobby, the better, better off we are. And, uh, and I know, you know, from my own experience, how hard it is to do. So to keep on doing it like you are, you're, you're a good man to, to, to keep it going. Now, big question. The signatures question that I ask everybody here at the Flat RC podcast, and everybody loves to hear everybody's answer. And that is, what has been your favourite all-time model?
1: Well, I suppose I'd—I've uh, probably got a couple. If, if it was a control line model, I'd turn around and say the—the uh, the Super Skylark that started, started me off in, in my modelling career really would be the—the the fa- favourite of the control line models. The—the um, the radio models, I—I uh, I guess I've probably become a bit notorious with the pipe—a cub. I flew a Piper Cub for must have been ten or twelve years in competition all around the place, and uh, I enjoyed flying a Piper Cub. it's a, it's a lovely aeroplane to fly and very docile, and um, not 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 easy to fly, but not very hard to fly either. So uh, I'd, I'd probably settle for the Piper Cub, I think.
0: Yeah, two good choices there. Now, John, it's it's been an absolute pleasure to have a chat with you, and uh, you know you really. A legend of aero modeling especially here in victoria with the production of the newsletter as well and your activity over the years and it was just i just really love talking to people about the old days of uh of flying so that we've, we've got record of what it was like and i've i'm i'm just so happy that you told me the stories about flying over the bay because i remember reading about it and thought it was just an amazing thing so to meet someone that actually gave it a go is 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 really an honor for me so Thank you for everything that you've done for Aero Modelling, continue to do, and thank you for just spending the time with me and uh, having a chat. So all the best, John.
1: Okay. Thanks for having me on the show, Andrew. About to leave, already packing.
0: Come with me, I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. Well, I think that's enough for you today. Big thank you to John Lamont. Uh, as I said, very excited. Been out flying. Uh, good to get out there, move the sticks. Always feel a lot better after I had a day out flying a model aeroplane. I hope you are as well. Don't forget, subscribe to the Flat RC uh, podcast Where, wherever you're listening now. There's probably a subscribe button. Click on it. Find it. Click on it, and then you'll be notified of the latest uh, episodes that are coming up. Uh, I had a bit of a cold. Don't know if you can hear it in my voice. Had a bit of a cold, but I'm really feeling good. Uh, so I took a bit of a week off with interviews, but uh, we'll get back into it. So we should have another episode for you next week. Otherwise, you can just listen to me for an hour. That'd be great. <laughs> anyway, uh, big thank you for joining me. Don't forget to subscribe to the Flat Out RC YouTube channel. The what else have we got? Uh, Flat Out uh, Facebook and Instagram, of course as well. Instagram still flying very well. Are uh, flying as far as subscribing, count going up and up. So. Big thank you to those that have joined on that bandwagon. So stay tuned. A lot more to come flat out RC. And a big thank you for joining me once again.
1: This is
0: what we waited for.